This is Capitalize Your Finances, the show representing you, a select group of excited, ready, and fired up listeners seeking to potentially maximize your money moves and get after it. We don't settle for generic advice of always and nevers. Our currency is our intellect, and we constantly seek the logical way of likely creating advantages to potentially maximize wealth for our personal and unique situations. This show brings you the step-by-step framework to capitalize your finances in the aspects of your financial situation. And we strive to explore strategies and ideas to potentially help you capitalize on your financial decisions. We are capitalizers, and this is our show. Welcome back to Capitalize Your Finances. As always, I'm your host, Christopher A. Paniotu, the cap in Capitalize. And today we have a very special guest that had to reschedule due to the blackout in Canada, the amazing new best friend of mine, the Rebecca Hotsko, the host of the Millennial Investing Podcast. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. And we're excited to have you here. I know it's been a ton of back and forth. You are a very, very popular woman with uh, tremendously high demand. So we're thankful to have you. So before we dive into uh, capitalizing your finances and how you've capitalized on your finances, can you take a moment and, and take us back to the beginning of how you got interested in the world of investing? Yeah, so I think this really started for me in university. I joined an investment club, actually. I was a straight econ kid. I hadn't ever taken a finance class before. And then I saw this investment club and I was like, that sounds very interesting. So I started going. I had no formal education or anything, but that's really where I started to learn about stocks, what stocks were. Um, We were pitching stocks kind of in a group of analysts and these were all students. And that's really where my journey began, to be honest. And from there, I started reading books at home. I was YouTubing everything. And this was back in like 27, 2018. So I hadn't really heard of podcasts or anything like that yet, even though they were out. Um, so I was just doing things like, yeah, reading YouTube, taking courses. And I bought my first stock when I was 18. And I've kind of been hooked ever since. So when you were in university, was there a particular friend or were you just walking by one day and you saw this class? Like, what was it that sparked you in the university? It actually was a friend. So I have to give him credit. He was in my econ classes with me and he was like, you have to come to investment club with me. And I was like, I don't know anything about investing. And so I owe it all to him. I guess I owe my career to him, really. Um, He got me interested. And then, yeah, I was hooked from there. And I just think that without that experience, I probably would have got into it later in life. But that really got me started early. And it benefited me because I made all my mistakes early too. Sure. Well, and speaking of school, because I, I did look you up and I know you went to school for economics. You only got a 4.0. Um, but I, I wanted to, to dive in a little bit more to that because regarding the hosting of one of the top investment podcasts in the world, um, obviously you got excited about investing in university, but before that, what were your aspirations, if you even had any? Yeah, I think just 
being in university, I was figuring it out, like probably most people are in their first few years. And then I stumbled upon economics and I really liked it. So I thought that was going to be my path. Honestly, I was good at it. I really liked monetary policy. And then I did a lot of extracurriculars and competitions that eventually led me to get a job at the Bank of Canada upon graduation. And so I thought that was going to be my path. I liked being in that corporate environment. And I really saw myself going on to do an MBA or my master's in econ. But then it all changed when I actually was doing my CFA um, during my time at the Bank of Canada. And then I that really clicked for me where I was like, I need to be in finance. I need to be in the investment industry. I just loved it so much. And anyone who's done the CFA knows how brutal it is. But to me, like, I honestly loved it. Like I loved learning about it. I loved applying it. And I just wanted to do it every day. And so that was kind of a signal to me that I needed to follow kind of my gut and do something else. And so that's kind of where that pivot happened. Well, you are the first person to ever tell me that you loved studying for the CFA. I think all of our asset managers that have worked with me are falling out of their chairs because that is the hardest, was it three exams? Mm-hmm. And and they are, from what I've understood, designed to weed people out, not get them absolutely elated about that. I mean, <laughs> what is it like? And I just have to note like, like really quick and then we'll keep moving on. But because it's three exams and I, I, from what I've understood, the first one, it's tough, but then the second one is just it's hellacious. Oh, the second right? one is the worst. Yeah, I actually I haven't done three yet. I still need to do three. That was kind of put on the back burner during COVID. So many things happened. Don't need to get into it with the you couldn't go into the rooms because you couldn't be in a room with people. And so yep. it all changed yep. then. But so I still have to do three. But yeah, two was the hardest. And I should say I didn't love studying for it. It was so hard, <laughs> okay. but I did love the content. And so it just really reaffirmed to me that that was the path I need to go um, and get out of the econ world, even though I was so thankful for everything I learned at the bank and being in that space. I just wanted to kind of do what I love. Yeah. Well, in speaking of that, because obviously you got a tremendous amount of experience with investing at the Bank of Canada, and then you also worked for the government of Saskatchewan, if I remember correctly. So what traits did you learn other than the obvious studying for the CFA? What traits did you earn to make you not only a better overall investor, but fast forwarding a little bit to an amazing host? Mm Mm-hmm. I kind of have to laugh at that. I haven't updated my LinkedIn in so long. I've had a few other, that was an internship at the government of Sask and that was great. Since then, I've had a few other corporate jobs, um, as well as I would say the thing, and this will help me answer the question, the thing that has really just helped me become a better investor and um, better worker and everything is running my own business. And so when I started my own business with my partner. It was a boat rental club. And then eventually we turned it into a boat sharing club. It really helped me um, learn about, it's what Warren Buffett talks about is think you have to invest like you're a business owner. And I never understood that until I ran my own business. And I realized how important that is. And everything that I learned during that experience 
Um, it really related back to investing in companies and what matters when you look for a company to invest in. You have to think like an owner because it all makes sense when you think of it in those simple terms. When you think of a business you're investing in, you care about how much cash are they making? What is what is their net income? But even more important than that, how are they arriving at that net, net income? Because when I was doing my financials for my company and I was putting in my depreciation um, assumptions and all of those things that a management can massage in the income statement and balance sheet, it clicked to me then that you need to look beyond the numbers. If you are going to be an investor in individual stocks, you can't just look at the income statements, the balance sheets, and you are going to get it. You're going to be successful. You need to really act like a business owner. And that's what Buffett preaches. And it just clicked to me when I started my own business because I think that's something that's not, it wasn't taught in the CFA. It's not taught in, I, I didn't take anything in, um, I guess, university, but it just seems like that part is lacking in courses because you do really have to look beyond the numbers. And so I think a business owner mentality was one of the biggest lessons that helped me become a better investor, a better worker, and just everything. Well, and speaking of being an amazing investor because of being an amazing owner, dive in a little bit more. So your boat rental club, and this was something I was waiting uh, to talk to you about because I know very, very little about this. So when you turned it to like a boat sharing club, was it almost like the Airbnb of boats? I mean, what what was the business model? Yeah, so essentially um, the idea was... Owning a boat is super expensive. Anyone who knows that it's extremely costly if you want a nice boat and then there's, you have to store it, you have to insure it, all these things, maintenance. It's a hassle to launch it. Anyone who owns a boat and you launch it, it's just a struggle. And so um, there was one other big, well, I guess there's two other big clubs in the area. So when we started our rental company, there's a few ways you can expand from there. You can expand your fleet and just do more rentals. But then we had the idea um, from other clubs that there was this boat sharing idea. And so it's basically kind of like, yeah, like the Airbnb for boats where you buy a membership and then you get unlimited access all season long. So it's um, owning a boat without the hassle of owning one because you get unlimited boating, but you pay a certain fee for the entire season. And then you, um, yeah, you can just rent it and book your slots. And so that was kind of a pivot for us because the cool thing about that from a business standpoint was you sell for rentals. It is variable. All of your revenues for the year completely depends on weather, how much tourism there is. But with a boat sharing club, you get all your money up front. And so from there, we knew how much sales we were going to get for the year. From there, we could take that capital and buy more rental fleets because rental fleets are where you make more money without getting into too much detail. But it was just a very cool um, way to expand and learn about expanding in a business and everything yeah. because of kind of the opportunity we saw in the market. Well, and I'm just thinking out loud, which is very dangerous. Um but people keep coming back to the show anyways. I digress. So one thing I'm thinking of the return on capital is insane because once you have all of these upfront costs, everything after that 
I mean, once you've obviously broken even, that's pure profit pretty quickly, I would imagine. I will say um, the so the return on capital was fantastic, but it was a lot of upfront capital, if that makes sense. Like it to yeah. because our boat, um, like our model was luxury boats. And so we were buying $160,000 boats because that was also our model. It's we were a luxury boat sharing club. So we wanted that prestigious status. So with that, it was a lot of upfront capital, but the returns on that, it, it was great, but it was, um, and I don't know, we don't need to get into this, but it taught me a lot about running a small business because it is so hard to get loans for a small business. And it just really made me understand why most small businesses fail because there's, it's kind of the environment sets you up. We couldn't get a loan. I had amazing credit. We couldn't get a small business loan for two years. And you can only go so far buying those high of um, expenditures with personal credit. And so it was just a really, really interesting experience for me. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> I'm just laughing because I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, this luxury boat, it's a screaming deal. And yeah, relatively speaking, it may be at a, a really low price, but then the absolute terms, it's like, well, where are we going to find three or $5 million for this luxury boat or in some cases more? So mm-hmm. once you you were rocking and rolling, did you guys just kind of wind that thing down? Did you sell? Like how, how did you get out of the boating industry? Yeah. So it was a lot of back and forth. And to be honest, we sold it because our hearts weren't in it anymore. And I know that there's kind of two ways you can think about entrepreneurship. It's people say like, follow your passion. You won't, you won't work a day in your life. But then there's other people that say, do what makes money because it won't always be your passion. Your passion won't always make money. And I think both of those things are very legit and very true. But with the boating, it ended up causing more stress than we we're getting out of it towards the end of the year. And I think a part of it was me and my partner were doing it all by ourselves. And so we didn't offload any work to anyone else. And so that was probably part of it, but it got to the point where we could get out at a good time and then use that to use that money to do something else um, that we are interested in versus continuing and building that company, if that makes sense. So when you got out of it, and that totally makes sense for for a number of reasons. I mean, that's one great thing about recurring revenue when it's steady throughout the year versus if you make everything in the summer and then you're just praying to God that you get through the hellacious winter. Um, that can be super nerve wracking. So one question that I had was with the, so you sell the the, the boating business How long was it until you got into switching gears to hosting the Millennial Investing Podcast? Yeah, so I actually, I started in August at the Investors Podcast hosting Millennial Investing. So I was actually still in our season. And so um, it was kind of, I wasn't doing a ton of work for it though, because everything had already been set up for the year. Um, and so I had started, it was kind of at the same time, but then we sold it, I think in, yeah, we sold it either like right around that time or a bit after towards the end of the season. And so I, it was kind of a gradual transition where I had actually just heard about the opening on a podcast 
episode and I applied and it just seemed like a perfect transition for me because I had some spare time. I was looking for something that I wanted that kind of felt like it was a passion for me. And so it felt like a perfect fit and I jumped right on it. And I'm so happy that to be a part of TIP now. Yeah. Well, in with running a boat business, really any sorts, but specifically yours and hosting the Millennial Investing Podcast, obviously there's a, a ton of differences, but what would you say were some of the best things that you learned from boating that has helped you as a host the most? Ooh, like I guess some valuable lessons. I would just say thinking about, so the mission of the show and really millennial investing is to help people make better financial choices and help bring on experts to teach people and improve their financial literacy and just financial well-being. And so I always think back to what do I, what did I wish, um, what kind of I wish I knew when I started investing? What questions am I still wondering in my boat business? Uh, what did I learn about running a business that's maybe applicable to people? And so I haven't really touched on entrepreneurship a ton on my show. I've focused more so on investing, but I do think that it all kind of ties in because it's what's going to help people make better decisions that's going to um, put them ahead financially. And so I always try and think about that when I'm bringing on guests, because one thing that's really unique about the Investors Podcast Network, um, We Study Billionaire Show, which is our flagship show, Millennial Investing, which is my show, is we bring on guests like your show, you bring on guests. And the reason that we do that and the reasons the founders wanted to set it up that way is because we want to bring on experts. We want to talk to the best in the business to teach people. Um, I don't think I'm an expert in anything. And so I bring on people to teach millennials. And so I, I guess one of the challenges is finding the right people that will add as much value to our listeners. And that I think um, kind of will meet TIP's mission. And so that's kind of an ongoing challenge. And I think it goes back to just always that question of what's going to add value to the listeners. Sure. Well, I will say I respectfully disagree on one thing. I think you're an expert in a lot of things, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so, so speaking of, and let's dive into the Millennial Investing Podcast a bit. So I know it's been since August uh, in that doesn't seem like a long time, but a lot's happened since August. So what have been some of your biggest challenges and hurdles to leap over? And are there, there any constant hurdles that you have as a, as a podcast host that sometimes you just you feel like you can't just quite hop over? It's so interesting. I think some people would be surprised to hear that podcasting is hard because <laughs> it honestly, it is, I would be very um, close to say it's the hardest job I've had. I mean, running a business was hard, but I, I know I work as hard, if not harder at this job. And um, it's just, I think some of the challenges for me are, I kind of already just mentioned it. It's just finding sure. the right people to bring on and what what questions people want answered because i can think about what questions i want answered but 
um, everyone kind of has a different investment style philosophy, and that is completely fine. It's not a one size fits all. And so if it was up to me, I would probably talk about factor investing until everyone's ears are bleeding. And so I want to also talk about things that interest um, the listeners. And so just constantly finding people that align with TIP's mission and that I think are going to just really help investors because investing can be as simple or as complicated as you want to make it. And so for some people, because it's really cool, we get to see our demographics. And so if majority of our listeners aren't in finance and they don't have time to do this stock analysis and pick pick all these um, stocks all day, well, then there's probably approach an approach that works better for them. And so I like to cater some content to maybe a passive investing crowd. And that's where factor investing gets very interesting because you don't need to pick stocks to be able to beat the market. But then there's other investors who that is maybe just fun for them. Maybe they love that and that's completely fine. And I do also want to cater to them and have guests on where we can do deep dives into stocks. And so I think having um, a hurdle is just like figuring out the balance of content and what you're talking about with different guests. And I'm sure that you probably face some of those similar things. Capitalizers, this episode is sponsored by the best-selling book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. Regardless of where you're at in your financial life, whether you're just beginning to express interest and commitment to your personal finances, at the pinnacle of your career, winding down into retirement, or thinking about your legacy for future generations, this book walks you through every step of the way so you can succeed on your terms and with your own values and passions guiding you. After reading this book, you will officially have Christopher A. Poniotu, the cap in capitalized, in your back pocket, guiding you in detail through every step of the way so that you can take charge of your finances, not the other way around. Head on over to Amazon.com today and start capitalizing your finances to the fullest with this incredible book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to financial framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. And now, back to the episode. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and when we first met, um, I remember we were talking and I believe, I forget how it came up, but basically it came about that, you know, I'm running my practice and, and running the show and yeah, I can tell you running a business is hard and running a podcast is freaking hard. And half the battle, if you have guests is, uh, clawing them to, to finally get on your show. And you know, um, God help you if they've got layers to them, mm-hmm. because let's face it, you may get them, but it's like, okay, now I've got, I got two weeks until my next episode. I gotta, I gotta fill the content tank here. So I, I totally get that. Now let's talk about you personally. Mm-hmm. Let's switch back to the personal side. So again, like I said, you're obviously brilliantly smart. You got a 4.0 that counts for something. So it's safe to say that your financial prowess is much more uh, pristinely successful than the average bear. But still being relatively new in your career and achieving this success in such a short period of time, sticking with the theme of the show, what are some of the things that you have done to capitalize on your finances? Yeah, I think the main things um, were actually something that I started doing a few years ago. And 
It is so simple. And I think that it's something that we often forget to do, but it's tracking your expenses, your what's coming in and what's going out. And it was really a game changer for me. I watched, I remember it was um, when I was working at the Bank of Canada and I wasn't making a ton of money at the time and I just couldn't save. I, I was making a decent amount, but it just felt like I couldn't save any money and I, I couldn't understand why. And I watched this documentary. It was called Playing With Fire. And it was all about the financial independence, retire early movement, which I always kind of scoffed at. I was like, these people just want to retire when they're 30 and do nothing. And that's not the case. And this movie perfectly depicted that. And it was so great because what it really talks about is aligning your spending with what you value and with what you want in life. And it helps you eliminate spending things on spending on things that you don't value. And so I took away, I watched that show and I, it was just like an epiphany. And so I wrote down all of my expenses because a monthly income or your yearly income ever that's pretty easy for most people to figure out you know that but what you spend is the harder thing and most people don't track that or ever think about that and so the main three things that people spend majority of their money on are shelter food and car payments and so i was writing down all my expenses and i realized that i was spending it was like about five or six hundred dollars a month on a car that I quite honestly used maybe once every two months because I lived downtown Calgary. I walked to work. I walked to the gym. I I walked everywhere. I didn't use my car. And so it just clicked to me. I was like, okay, if I stopped, if I got rid of this, I would save $600 a month. And it was, that's, that was an example for me. And when I started doing this exercise and I tracked all of my expenses for the next like four months until I felt comfortable where I was very good at it, I ended up saving and then being able to invest. It was over $30,000 in one year when I was only making $60,000. And so most there's a common thing that um, you should save about 40% of your income. That sounds like really high to a lot of people, but this exercise kind of allowed me to see that it wasn't that hard. I just had to cut something out. And for a lot of people, you can't cut a car payment because some people probably drive to work, but there are going to be things that you can cut out and it truly does add up. And you're going to see that that probably didn't align with what you value because then that money can be used for other things that you value more. It could be investing or future trips or just anything for your children, for your family. And so that really changed the game for me. It helped me become a better saver because you can only become a better investor if you're a better saver. If you have no money to invest, then you, <laughs> you're not going to get too far. And so it just also showed me that you don't have to make a lot to be able to invest a lot. And so I, like I said, like that was a okay income, but the fact that I was able to save 50% of it just put me so far ahead. And I'm so happy that I did that early on because I think, um, yeah, if you carry on those savings habits as you go, you'll just, the earlier you do it, the better. And then the kind of the second thing that I've done recently is I mentioned the three things that you spend um, most of your money on house, shelter, and or shelter, food, and cars. So I decided to house hack and we actually started airbnb our basement during the summer because we live in one of the most touristy places in Canada. So it kind of just worked out 
well and that we started house hacking and that was a way to our rent was paid for like six months and so living in the most expensive place in Canada that was great for me I love that so small things like that it um it just showed me how kind of easy it is to hack your way into saving and not spending as much money on those core items and if you can't do that there are other things that you can cut there's always something sure well and in one question i had on on all of that and i'm thankful that you found that out as far as the saving realizing that you weren't needing to spend all of this have you noticed with a lot of not necessarily coworkers, but friends, family, and, and et cetera, that the spending in, I don't want to say unnecessary spending, but it really is unnecessary spending. Do you think it's it's a pretty brutal addiction? Do you see that amongst a lot of your friends now? I don't, I think I have certain friends where I notice it and I have talks with them, but then I am the frugal friend. Like I'm the person and I'm okay saying that. Like I yeah. am bad at spending money. And so then sometimes I have to catch myself and be like, it's okay to live. It is okay to spend some money because there's the reverse where you don't enjoy life. You're just saving and, um, you, you have to have a portion of your income that you spend on things you enjoy. And that's not the part of investing and saving. It's to not enjoy anything. You sh still should. And that's why I love the FIRE movement because that's exactly what it's saying. It's saying spend money on things you enjoy and you love and don't spend money on the useless things that you're just spending money on because maybe you think you have to or maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you have a shopping addiction yeah. or something or Starbucks. Everyone has their thing. And if you love Starbucks, if you need that to get your morning going, fine. But then you maybe cut something else out. Maybe you don't go for lunch every day. And so I just think it's very personal and unique to everyone. But I think it's just such a useful exercise for everyone to revisit. If you catch yourself not saving as much, just start tracking again. And do you find yourself, because being the CFA and now that you've, you've converted from, okay, excess spending to I'm on the war path. I am, I have got this down. Do you find yourself getting too locked in to making sure that you're saving X amount? Cause I can tell you like personally, um, that is something that kills me. And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I'd say I'm frugal, but like prudent, but then you can become too prudent and it's that weird balancing act. Do, do you, do you struggle with that at all? Being an investor mind? 100%. And I think <laughs> it's just, yeah, I don't know why it got ingrained in me. Um, it was a few years ago because before that I spent money on all kinds of dumb things. But then I think I saw when you choose those, like when you choose wisely on what you spend on your, you can have so much freedom. And I think it just clicked to me so much. And so I think I do still struggle with the aspect of I need to save and invest this much just because I want to set myself up as best as I can for the future. And if I can fast track that by saving more today, then I want to do that. But then we just talked about there comes a point where you also have to enjoy life when you're young. And so I think that is something that I'm still trying to um, do better, honestly. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and look, it's a good problem to have. Um, 
but it is, it's one of those things where I'm, and I'm also glad you knew what I was talking about. Cause if you didn't, it would have been really awkward. Right. Um, but I, I, like I'll even tell my counselor that one of the things that's like, Hey, you know, you gotta be prudent for the future. Uh, you have to be very habitual, almost rigorous with it. And then you forget about the lot. It, it's a constant cycle. So I'm glad that you were vulnerable about that because a lot of people don't like to admit their vulnerability with it. Now, what are some of the steps and processes that if you could go back and start from zero regarding building your career today, what would you have done differently? I think, honestly, if I look back, I would probably just have taken more risks early on because I think for a while I had set in stone where I was on this path to become an economist or I needed to stay in the corporate world. And there's something called the sunk cost fallacy, which is people have the tendency to want to continue with an endeavor or they want to keep putting time, effort or money into something because they've already put time, effort and money into that thing. And I think I was falling victim to that where I was in this path that I had already committed so much time and energy in, but it wasn't really something that um, lit my spirits up or anything. And so I maybe stayed in it too long or I, I'm very risk averse. And so I don't take a lot of risks. And if I could go back, I honestly would tell myself that those are the years to do it because as you get older, you cannot take those types of risks. And so even in the business, I am a person that learns before doing. And then my partner is do and then learn. And it's interesting. I think actually I heard Elon Musk say he's a, I do and then learn. And to me, that is just so crazy. I'm like, I need to know every single thing before I act, especially if there's money on the line in a business Uh or um, an investment. And Sometimes that's great, but sometimes that can hold you back because you are just constantly like seeking perfection and you never end up acting. And I think that has held me back in some aspects. And that's even something I struggle with in interviews and stuff. I want everything to be perfect. I will research someone for days and it's at the end of the day, it's great, but sometimes it's overboard. And so I think that's one thing um, I've learned is to just try and do and then learn in some aspects in the right, in the right context. Yeah. Well, and, and for you, would you say you're risk adverse or would you say you're more extremely calculated? Maybe a bit of both because it is interesting. Like I would say I, yeah, I am very calculated and I do, um, yeah, but I would also say that risk scares me in a lot of ways. And so, but it shouldn't because with so many things in life are risks and that's where you get the greatest rewards. And so many risks are just you feeling kind of uncomfortable in a situation, but when you're uncomfortable, that's when you can grow new opportunities. And so it's not always a bad thing in the, again, within context. Sure. Sure. Well, and and I'm even thinking from a risk standpoint, just in investing. Um, I can tell you how many that I just stare at this sucker and I wait and I just never do it. And it just blows on by. And I'm sure you've had the same thing and it probably kills you, right? Because you're like, why the heck did I not do this? Mm -hmm. But then it's, 
that's the one thing I will say that is brutal about investing because there, there's the art and the science. And I'm much more like you where I, I love the numbers. And one of our favorite asset managers is all about the art and it drives me crazy. I'm like, what is the sauce? Mm-hmm. And can't answer it because it's just, it's a feel thing. And so I guess before we, we close out the show, one of my questions was, have you found ways to lean more into the art side of investing, which will lead to more overall success for you? I honestly think this will be a shameless plug to our show and your show and all the great content creators out there, but it's listening, finding um, accredited um, investors or shows that can teach you about um, investing and just expanding your knowledge and learning from experts in a variety of fields, whatever you're interested in. It's amazing how many people I get to talk to and learn from. And I think that's helped me kind of dive and lean more into that aspect is just learning, reading from people that have been successful. If you can find a mentor, if it's outside of investing, but in investing, there are so many amazing resources that you can get just by books. Some of my favorite are Larry Swedrow. Honestly, if I could recommend one author for someone who just wants to start out and they just want a basic approach, they don't want to worry about all the noise. They just want to invest for their future. Larry Swedro's got you. He is incredible. I just had him on my show, actually. So that interview will be going out. An amazing person, um, so generous with his time. And he just wants to help people become better investors and not make it hard because we talked about this. Investing can be simple. It can be hard. Figure out what type of investor you want to be and then find people in the space to learn from. And so I think reading books by people that I look up to, um, speaking with incredible people in the space and then being involved in the community has just really helped me lean into that as well. Yeah. Larry is awesome, by the way. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am personally hyped for that interview. Well, my last question, and then we'll close it out. What do you have going on right now that excites you the most? In particular, is there a project that you're just, you, you just, you can't stop thinking about it. keeps you up at night. Is there a topic that you're, you're interested in? Like what is keeping Rebecca just on the path? Honestly, it would just be millennial investing and continuing to, I'm living my dream, to be honest. I'm helping, I get to talk to people, experts in the space, learn about investing from the best investors in the world and people that are doing this day in, day out and share that with our listeners. And to me, that is the most exciting thing ever. And one thing that really excites me is that I get to share kind of my unique strategy because factor investing wasn't talked about a lot on our show. And I've already mentioned that about six times in the show, but it's something I'm so passionate about, something that Larry teaches and having people on that I align with and sharing that with our listeners is something I'm so passionate about because I don't think it's talked about enough. I think that often Wall Street and a lot of Um, investment websites. Everyone just wants to sell you products. They want to, um, you have to think about what are their incentives. And so 
I love when you can have people on that break those down for you. And they say, there is a way to do this. You can ignore Wall Street. You don't have to read the news every day. Um, And you can be a great investor and you can live a great life. You don't have to check your account, your brokerage account and check what your stocks are doing every day. You can if you want, if you want to be that investor. But to me, um, I resonate with an approach that I don't want to worry about my portfolio. I want to set myself up for the future, but I want to live my life. And so that's something that I'm super passionate about teaching the listeners about and bringing more people on in the space that share those views and that have um, decades of empirical evidence to back up their claims on why that works. Yeah. Well, and, and where can capitalizers go to find you? So they can first listen to me and all of the amazing guests that I bring on on the Millennial Investing Podcast. And then you can personally connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Rebecca Hotsko. As well as Instagram, It's the handle is Millennial Investing Podcast. And those are probably the main places. I do have a Twitter, Rebecca underscore Hotsko. Um, I'm mostly just a retweeter. I don't put out any personal or unique content, but I do respond to people on there. So um, I'm available on all of those places. Fantastic. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on Capitalize Your Finances. And to those of you listening in, thank you as always for tuning into the show. If you have any questions about today's episode, you know the drill. Either give me a call, 253-214-3050, or you can shoot me an email, chris at capitalizeyourfinances.com. And lastly, if you have anyone that you think should come on the show and enlighten you how they have capitalized on their finances, make sure to hit me up. As always, I'm your host, Chris Ray Paniotu, The Cap and Capitalize. And until next time, keep capitalizing. The information provided should not be considered specific tax, legal, or investment advice and is not specific to any individual's personal circumstances. Different types of investments and or investment strategies involve varying levels of risk, and there can be no assurance that any specific investment or investment strategy will be profitable for a client's or prospective client's portfolio. Thus, investments may result in a loss of principal. Accordingly, no client or prospective client should assume that the information presented serves as the receipt of or substitute for personalized advice from Capitalize Your Finances or from any other investment professional. You should always seek counsel of the appropriate advisor prior to making any investment decision. All investments are subject to risk, including the loss of principal. This material was gathered from sources believed to be reliable. However, its accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Christopher Paniotu is a registered representative with and securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. The investment professionals are affiliated with LPL Financial and are conducting business using the name Capitalize Your Finances, a separate entity from LPL Financial. Rebecca Hotsko is not affiliated with Capitalize Your Finances or LPL Financial.